Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm Val, and this is Emmy. Hello. I got um the cutest mechanical keyboard, and I'm just so happy about it all the time. Whoa. Right? That's what you were telling me about the other day, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm just so into, like, just mechanical keyboards as, like, a concept. And because you can customize, like, everything about them. And their main draw is that they have, like, amazing, like, response time and, like, clicks. It's, I was oh, going to say the sound. The sound. And just, like, the feeling of the buttons. It's such, like, a more pleasurable experience compared to, like, a, like, the, like, electric or I don't even know what to call, like, but, like, you know, like, the keyboards we have on our MacBooks. Yeah. Because the feedback is, like, so minimal, I find. So this is, like, so much more fun, and I can't wait to, like, change the keycaps, and I'm hoping I can customize it in a way where it's, like, a little bit more compatible with my MacBook because it's, like, a Windows Razer laptop, so the buttons are a little bit different, but I'm adapting pretty well. <laughs> yeah, like, I got one for my monitor, mm-hmm, so I mm-hmm. can, like, have an extension over here. But totally. same thing, if I want to hit, like, control, it won't really recognize it because it's not command on yes. my MacBook. The other thing, too, because um, I'm just, like, an absolute dork at this point, is now I have a Razer headset, a Razer keyboard, and a Razer mouse. <laughs> I love it, too, because, like, because it's a Razer, it, like, it's so interactive. Like, like oh, if I press the function key, it shows Ooh. me all the buttons that have a function. That's awesome. It's like crazy town. I think that's so freaking cool. And if I hit the caps lock, it changes color. So it tells me it's on. Brendan thinks it's so funny. He's like, I just live vicariously through you because I'm just so into gadgets. (laughs) But like, I literally found this crazy sale. Um, It was like a refurbished used Samsung watch. So of course, I finally bit the bullet and decided to get it because I need to track my steps. (laughs) (laughs) yeah it was literally like a third of the normal price so we out here we seeking deals okay i think i have a pretty good grasp on what i'm like trying to portray um i feel like i could literally write like a whole five page paper on this oh my god yeah (laughs) I was like, I could just keep going and then <laughs> keep going. Like, and then... literally. You got anything right. new going on with you? I um, feel like I could think of so many things other than right now. I know. Like, seriously. No, honestly, there's not really too much going on. Tomorrow, I work my half day. And then me and Brendan, I actually set it up so that we're going to get a haircut together just a simple trim and then I'm gonna have her like buzz either both of the sides or just one side I haven't fully decided yet um he decided to purchase us a hotel room for the night um so it's gonna be like a real proper like fun day for us (laughs) it'll just be really nice for us to just be able to spend time together and it's like we're not even planning to do anything like crazy we're just planning to get a bunch of snacks some alcohol and watch a movie at the hotel like it just it's just gonna be nice oh that'll be fun yeah i think we we both need it 
Oh my god, so you heard about how my parents were calling in the dog the other night, but they the were deer? actually yelling at a deer, and a the dog deer. just came up behind them. Like, what are you guys yelling about? <laughs> I could easily see your mom bring in, like, a cryptid or a bear, or, like, God forbid she loses her glasses and just starts picking up raccoons. <laughs> <laughs> It, it's like the people encourage the cowardly dog sometimes. <laughs> that is a perfect comparison. I love that. Although your dad is much nicer than Eustace. Yeah. Like, I'll just be in the house, like, sipping something, looking out the window, and it's, like, people waving their arms. Like <laughs> That's so cute. In current news... Mm-hmm. So my dad had to board up a hole in our attic that a raccoon chewed out because it wanted to go in there. Mm-hmm. And it could be the same one that was in there last spring. Mm-hmm. And basically it had some babies and they'll just like bumble all around up there. Oh. Like it is so loud hearing them scratch and like it's madness so he was trying to prevent that this year Mm -hmm. from them like being kind of in our house but the other night I was home trying to sleep and I hear like the scratching on the plywood trying to like break it off and they're like on the roof jumping around Mm -hmm. and I it kept me up almost all night I went outside with the flashlight around midnight like please let me sleep like I was trying to scare them (laughs) off Or I would bang on the wall. I love critters if they come in peace. I was like, this is like some CIA mind game business. Just positively insidious. A whole gang of raccoons. That's so Yeah. We have a huge raccoon that lives on the property. And all last summer, it was so freaking funny because like it was got to a point where we couldn't leave any kind of food nothing there at any height because he would just (laughs) get it devour it and leave us nothing like my coworker literally had like a bag of like fresh apples he picked and um he accidentally left it in our like pseudo office where we stay outside during the summer and we came in the next day and there were just these sticky apple footprints just all (laughs) over the office the bag was completely empty not even a core was left behind like this this raccoon had a feast and it would come back every single day we would see fresh footprints it figured out how to tip over all of our trash cans to look inside it was so cute and one day we actually caught it in our dumpster like we just found it so we had to put like this big piece of like plywood in there to let it get out (laughs) it was so cute hey waste not want not I know like honestly like as long as it doesn't cause any destruction or like chew through wires or whatever I do not have a problem the only downside is that um if there was like a a possum then Zuma would probably start crying so (laughs) (laughs) he has like the biggest fear of rodents i've ever seen in somebody and apparently it's because in brazil they have like massive massive like literal tree rats um so i get it i understand but i also think it's hilarious um and so he said like he's seen like uh you know like a north american opossum before and he was like absolutely not get that the fuck out of here 
Like you cannot catch me. Like we have a we have a weasel on the property now. That's our newest Ooh. predator. And um, the weasel got into the house. And Zuma sometimes stays at the house overnight, especially if he's working late. And he tells this story of eating dinner and looking over and seeing the weasel just looking back at him. And Zuma literally, <laughs> he was like, he said he was like this close to like throwing up. He was like scared out of his mind. But then the weasel like stood up and looked at him and then left mm-hmm. and he was like it's not a rat <laughs> <laughs> the weasel stole one of our fish so that's something now that we have to be aware oh, of mm-hmm. it wasn't baby was it well actually big baby fathead did pass away he got an infection and we just couldn't get rid of it so we ended up having like a little funeral for him when he finally died um and then the weasel took another fish so oh we went God. from 4 to 2 so <laughs> It's just life and times, you know, dealing with nature. Imagine being like a customer on that day and there's just like a Viking funeral for a giant goldfish and yeah, all we the co-workers to... are just like around. Yeah, we all had to play it very cool. There, Because like we literally made like a box for him with like mm-hmm. little flowers and stuff. And then like Joe had to like find a time where there were no customers so we can take him out of the tank, put him in the box. And then we had him there for a little while. I took pictures and then Joe uh, buried him in the compost pile. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Makes me sad. He was my favorite. I have four in my pond at my parents' house right mm-hmm. now. Slim body ones for me. Mm-hmm. Nice. I like the big chunker. <laughs> I like the ones that are as close to carp as possible. Totally. So uh, and when they get big, it's just like a giant fish. Like yes. there's no nothing fancy about it. It's just a giant just fish. A big ass fish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like you don't need much else. Just a big ass fish. Yeah, exactly. And I'm like, this is great. Yeah. So I had a little fun with our switcheroo this week. You got to see if you can stay awake through mine now. Are you kidding? I have seen every single Saw movie (laughs) at least four times over, except for the newest one with like Chris Rock or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you like that one? So I watched that recently, actually. Mm -hmm. For what it was, I did enjoy it. Saw trying to be like diverse, but it's almost a little too late. It's like when you're going through the summaries that I wrote, you see that every single white guy name ever is used. Matt, Mark, Adam, (laughs) whoever, Logan, (laughs) like all of those. Mm -hmm. Eric, that's another one. Daniel. Mm -hmm. I felt like it was kind of like a cop movie trying to be Saw. It just wasn't, it didn't have the same like, wow factor that all the other ones had it wasn't as dark it wasn't as weird um I don't I kind of thought it was a little bit more pacified um Mm. but I'm also a little bit of a Saw purist I honestly Mm -hmm. think that any Saw movie that does not have John Kramer is in it just shouldn't exist it just shouldn't even be I don't care if he's dead he isn't bring him back like (laughs) Which apparently they are in the newest one. He's going to come back. I heard that one's coming 2023. So I'm pretty excited about that. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm pumped. Like, I remember when the Saw movies were, like, 
the scariest thing that you could watch yeah (laughs) oh my god I'm I'm excited because the thing too like when you had said that you chose this topic I'm really excited to see how you approach it because there's so Mm -hmm. many movies there's so many plot twists uh like all the crooked cops yeah basically what I kind of prepared was how I interpreted the movies as a little overview for maybe the listener who hasn't watched them because I know so many people that are like yeah like I've watched the first one or the second one sometimes but like Uh that was it but I know there's like a bunch of them and I'm like what do you mean you don't know about the Saw extended universe I was like these are insane and like everyone needs to experience these literally because it's not it really isn't just about the torture it's about the puzzles and what they mean and like the the plot twists like nothing will ever match when I watch like the first three I think Mm -hmm. those are so solid and so twisty turny like (laughs) there's a couple that I felt kind of like not really like satisfied by just because their endings I was so like what the fuck (laughs) So basically what I'm going to do is go through each movie kind of chronologically. Mm -hmm. So when I finish one, if Mm. you want to tell me what you thought of it as well, and I'll probably tell you what I thought of it just briefly. Um, So I'll summarize it. And then if you want to discuss at that point, because it just gets crazier and crazier as you go. Mm hmm. <laughs> don't even like I can't even think of the names of the cops the only one that I can think of is Amanda she's not a cop oh, yeah but she's bad she's shit. the only one you need to know yo honestly honestly as far as Saw movies go the characters were the worst but the one with that guy who pretends like he's a survivor and then him and all of his friends get bopped. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that one, that one I think was hard to watch because in a way they were all innocent. When Nathan and I first watched the first and second one, and I guess the third one too, because she's just in all of them, Mm -hmm. we were like, Amanda gives such like gay vibes on the down low, you know? (laughs) Massive, like huge. (laughs) Down low where? Yeah. <laughs> and like I rewatched this with Carter lately and I was like, are you getting this too? Like, or is this just me? <laughs> yeah. Like some of these, some of the characters are very much coded into those like stereotypes. So if you want, I can start. Yes. I have drinks ready, my vape. I'm ready. <laughs> So this week, I'm talking about the Saw movies and the Saw Extended Universe. There's currently nine affiliated Saw movies, with the 10th one, like we said, coming out in 2023 this year. And I think it's supposed to be the summer, or it could be October, because pretty much every other Saw movie comes out around Halloween. So I probably should have fact-checked that. But anyways, (laughs) in order of release, they are... Saw 2004, Saw 2 2005, Saw 3 2006, Saw 4 2007, Saw 5 2008, Saw 6 2009, 
Saw the final chapter, a.k.a. Saw 3D, a.k.a. Saw 7, 2010, Jigsaw 2017, Spiral from the Book of Saw 2021, and then Saw 10 coming this year, allegedly. And a little bit of fun trivia I found was the second movie was greenlit actually the weekend that the first Saw came out because it was so successful. As you know, these movies, they're all interconnected and in a delightful fashion, they get increasingly more complicated as you make your way through them. And just for the listener, even though it's pretty obvious, there's spoilers ahead. And this is a retroactive spoiler warning for anything we might have already said. It's like that episode in What We Do in the Shadows when I think it's the home flipping episode when (laughs) Nadia's like, you won't remember that we're vampires when they edit this. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Got to cover all the bases. (laughs) so in the start of the first movie we see two guys chained up by their ankles in the nastiest abandoned bathroom you can imagine basically it looks like the wendy's bathroom in salem so in between them (laughs) no that's gross in between them we see a dead body with a gunshot wound to the head and This deceased person is holding the gun and also a tape recorder, the essentials. And there are also tape recorders in the men's pockets who are chained up. And it's clear that the two men still alive were drugged and brought to this location, which is how most of the abductions in these movies unfold. We just see people in pig masks like chloroform everybody and kidnap them. These guys are revealed to be Adam, a sketchy photographer and Dr. Lawrence Gordon, an oncologist. Adam's tape tells them to escape, whereas Gordon's tape says he has to kill Adam by 6 p.m. or his wife and child will die. Adam finds two saws, but his snaps while he's trying to cut his chains. Basically, Gordon now suspects they were kidnapped by the serial killer named Jigsaw, whose M.O. is basically punishing people to the extreme in torturous ways in order to test their will to live and arguably to punish them for their misdeeds. So one thing for the listener to keep in mind is that if you find yourself in a saw trap, you probably have a personal connection to Jigsaw, to your fellow captive people, and Jigsaw believes you've done something to deserve to be in this situation. Gordon informs us that, surprise, he has a personal involvement in the Jigsaw case. After he took his medical students to visit a terminally ill patient named John Kramer, (laughs) (laughs) Gordon's medical pen was found at a crime scene, which basically linked him, but his alibi cleared him. However... Obviously, from this evidence, the lead detective suspected him so much that they had still been staking him out. Back in the bathroom, Gordon finds a box with some cigarettes, a phone, and a lighter. The phone rings, and it's not someone calling about his car's extended warranty. It's his kidnapped wife, Allison. And boy, does she have a message for him. Don't trust Adam. (laughs) So... 
We learn Adam was a photographer hired by detectives to keep an eye on Gordon because they suspected him so much. In doing so, Adam found out Gordon, while maybe not a killer, was having an affair with a student of his. And we're shown proof of this with some photos. And in one of the photos is a picture of their captor, who's actually an orderly from the hospital Gordon works at, named Zep. As six o'clock approaches, Zep turns up the heat on Gordon's family because Gordon hasn't killed Adam yet. But his wife frees herself and attacks. Luckily, the lead detective, who has been watching Gordon's family so closely, borderline stalking them, notices the struggle going on and intervenes. But Zep escapes. He goes to the bathroom dungeon where Gordon and Adam are being held. Meanwhile, it's past six, and in desperation to try to save his family and himself, Gordon saws off his foot to escape the chains. He shoots Adam, who fights back, while Zep arrives, and Adam attacks him with the toilet lid. Gordon crawls away, while Adam, bleeding out, searches Zep's body and finds a tape recorder, revealing he was also a jigsaw victim instructed to capture Gordon's family. Then. At the end of the movie, we heard the classic Saw theme called Hello, Zep, actually. And the deceased corpse. Yeah, that's the name of the song. Wait, that's so brutal. And then from then on, it's in every single movie? Yeah, and he's like only in the first movie, I'm pretty sure. Damn. Basically, the music comes up and the deceased corpse, a.k.a. John Kramer, Stands up in the bathroom, informs Adam the key to his shackle was in the bathtub before it fell down the drain. And then he just leaves Adam to die, thinking he didn't learn his lesson. But I feel like in hindsight, Adam is by far not the worst person Saw had kidnapped. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree. I thought this movie was definitely a good kickstart to the series and kind of appropriately gory for 2004 so do you have anything you want to add on the first movie Mm, mm. i would definitely rate it a two out of ten on the gore score um (laughs) because there's blood but minimal minimal gore most of the thrill is in like the psychological aspect i think um and when the first time i saw it and i saw john kramer get up off that floor i literally thought i i was gonna die like that yeah was, like and then when he just shuts the door and he's like game over i was like <laughs> i was like yo you know adam is just gonna stay in there like yeah I no think, I, yeah <laughs> i think it was also carter who told me this that tobin bell who plays john yeah. kramer was that. actually a soccer coach and <laughs> I was like, imagine just like you're in youth soccer and you find out your coach was like in a movie and you want to watch him. So you convince (laughs) your parents to watch Saw and then you're like, see your coach just do this. (laughs) That's honestly so cute. I can't picture the man who plays John Kramer doing anything that requires him to raise his voice. (laughs) Yeah, I guess he's just like a regular guy, kind of. Mm, sounds fake. Sounds fake. <laughs> but yeah, um, I definitely really enjoyed this one. I think this is like the mold 
for the Saw series. And, and it's so expansive, but it, there's just constant callbacks to this specific movie, which I think is awesome. Yeah, it's delightfully simple almost. Yes. Because yes. the other ones get so complicated. And mm-hmm. I feel like if this one was anyone but number one, yeah, it would kind of seem slow yeah it would actually like because there's beauty in a in simplicity to tell a story but especially for like the first movie but if we had like number two and three you know and then this was after that it would be it would be simple in a bad way it would be like okay we just regressed in our storytelling but yeah, I'm I'm very excited um for for how convoluted it gets. But I also like too that you said that Adam was definitely like the nicest one because like in in the biggest sense he really is the most benign person. Because as we continue, you know, we're like we're getting into some real criminal vigilante territory. And same thing, like if Adam was kidnapped in any of the other movies, they'd be like what's he doing here? Literally, like, what is this baby boy doing here? And he would probably die in, like, five seconds. <laughs> in the next movie, we're introduced to some new characters. Detectives named Eric. And Eric is actually played by Donnie Wahlberg, which I think just what? adds a funnily Bostonian aspect to this. Wait, are you this. serious? Yeah. What? Go back and watch it. I was I was like, he looks so familiar. And then I looked up just like researching this and I was like, oh my God, that's him. And I like, I knew he was married to Jenny McCarthy, but I just didn't expect her husband to be like the Saw guy, like in multiple movies. That's crazy. I had no idea he was a Wahlberg. Yeah. Oh my god. I was like, that just makes me like them even more. And then I'm pretty sure the other one is Allison Carey, is her name, the Mm -hmm. other detective. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we have detectives, (laughs) Eric Matthews, which isn't that the same name as the detective in Miss Congeniality, if I'm not mistaken? As much as I love that lady, I do not know. This is almost blasphemous. Oh, Sandra Bullock. That's her name. Yes, yes. Isn't the guy his name? Yeah. Benjamin Bratt as FBI agent (laughs) Eric Matthews. (laughs) So is Miss Congeniality a canon soft film? Are they in the same universe? Or maybe maybe Miss Congeniality Eric Matthews stole the identity of Saw Eric Matthews. Yeah, I mean, I feel like those both came around came out around the same time. Uh Saw 2 was five years after. Oh. All right. <laughs> Plagiarism. Okay. <laughs> I like how we're only on the second movie. Bro, I love these movies. (laughs) (laughs) So, Detectives Eric and Allison, they're investigating the jigsaw killings at the start of the second movie. Upon locating Kramer's hideout, Jigsaw reveals that he's got a trap going on right now that's unfolding on some TV monitors. And side note, every time I say Kramer, I also think of Seinfeld. (laughs) So I I have that going on in my head. We see that not only Eric's son, but also a former Saw Trap survivor 
Amanda, and six other people are trapped in a rundown house. They're inhaling a toxin that gives them two hours to find the antidote, otherwise they die. The other six people in the room with Amanda and Eric's son, Daniel, are Xavier, Jonas, Addison, Laura, Obi, and Gus. <laughs> and there's a tape with unhelpfully vague instructions, so the group tries to make their way through the house to locate the various antidote syringes. Gus dies right off the bat as the doorknob of the first room is rigged to a gun trigger as you open it. Now in the basement, the survivors hear that Obi was the one that helped abduct them, so they vote him to enter the next trap, which is a furnace with two syringes inside. He accidentally turns it on and burns alive, and we do see that he probably could have shut it off by turning a valve inside it, and it was almost frustratingly simple for him to not have figured it out. Like, they made it very clear to the viewer that he just had to turn that thing to get it to shut off, but he dies. So far, our team has zero syringes. In another room, Xavier, who happens to be a drug dealer, is asked to jump into my absolute favorite saw trap to receive a key for the next room, the Pit of Needles. This is your favorite? Yeah. This is like quintessential. (laughs) Instead, he shoves Amanda into the pit and it's one of the most gruesome scenes that like will make any I feel like horror fan almost have to look away. She's basically crawling around as the needles going in her and they're bouncing around. I thought the effects for this scene though were great because of how realistic it looked. So she's in there, she finds the key, but not quick enough before the timer runs out. So now we jump back to Kramer's secret villain hideout where he's biding his time with Detective Eric Matthews. (laughs) Eric's frustration grows, and Kramer informs him that his son could be in danger because the other victims in the house were actually all people wrongfully arrested by Matthews and convicted because he planted false evidence. So we find this out, and then we go back to the house, which Saw is basically just two stories and they just jump in between scenes every single movie xavier kills jonas laura dies prematurely from the toxin addison dies in a trap trying to get a syringe where she has to stick her arms above her head in a glass box that has razor blades lining the armholes so you can assume how that went when she tried to take her arms out Oh, I have a good analogy for this. It's like if you have a cup from McDonald's and you stick your finger into where the whole, like the straw goes, and then you try to pull your finger out and the plastic is so sharp that you like, you have to decide. (laughs) Yes, it's exactly like that. Yeah. So now Amanda and Eric's son Daniel escape the house via a tunnel that cuts through the bathroom from the first movie. Eric forces Kramer to take him to the house, but almost too late, the investigators actually realize that the events happening on screen have already occurred. If Eric had just waited out the time, he would have found his son safe in the hideout, locked in a closet. So the gist of this like 
movie is Eric not having learned a lesson is now chained up in the murder bathroom at the end of the second movie because he wouldn't patiently wait for his son to be freed even though he didn't know that was what he had to do really in the first place John Kramer was kind of just like what did he say like he said I think it was like two hours or something like he wanted him to wait but oh sure 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 do you remember that I I think I remember kind of like the the gist of it in the sense that he literally just didn't have to intervene as in he didn't have to plant you know fake evidence these people were all going to do what they were supposed to do anyway yeah yeah I thought this one was crazy because it also brought up the concept of like um sometimes you're in a test but it's not actually your test because it almost had like nothing to do with the sun and you know like he was just there and he was part of Eric's test he wasn't even part of the actual test yeah the sun just needs therapy now um Mm -hmm. Eric's given a tape recorder that informs him that Amanda is actually one of Kramer's apprentices Mm. so Saw 2 is actually probably my favorite Saw movie. Mm-hmm. Like I said, The Needle Pit is my favorite trap. And I think the actors did a great job of capturing the desperation of the situation. Whereas in some Saw movies, the victims just seem mildly inconvenienced to be there. Yeah, yeah. Because especially when, like, Xavier is going around killing people, like, I think that's a really intense, like, mm-hmm. chase scene. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, yeah. I thought he was honestly scarier than the house. Like, the idea that you would be trapped in something like that, and you have, like, this murderous, like, I don't know, psycho just going ham because he's angry. Like, that's crazy. (laughs) Yeah, that one is definitely my favorite. Mm -hmm. So, do you have any other points on the second movie? Hmm. No, I do not. Like in Mandalorian, like, I have spoken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's definitely the energy I carry. Did you see Lizzo was in, like, the most recent one? Yeah, Lizzo and Jack Black. I haven't yeah. seen the episodes yet, but I think now I actually have to watch some. So it worked, the advertising. <laughs> no, literally absolutely 100% I am their demographic yeah (laughs) literally the two of them yeah oh and they also have one of my favorite redheads in I have three redheads that I'm like absolutely I'll watch anything they're in one of them is Katie Sackoff I love her so much I can't tell if I want her to adopt me or if I want to be her I I haven't really decided yet (laughs) but she's awesome I saw her in a sci-fi Netflix show called Another Life. Watch it. <laughs> Do you know who she plays in Mandalorian? Uh, is she Bo-Katan? Uh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, she is awesome. Bro, and I'm telling you, she plays that badass female, maybe a little crazy, really super dangerous. You definitely want her on your side. She consistently plays characters like that. And I I just don't get tired of it. I really don't. 
Yeah, you got to watch the third season then because it's yeah. like a lot about her. No, exactly. Like when I saw that, I was like, damn, I'm about to lose so much time. <laughs> <laughs> but she was in um Another Life. I really, really recommend it. Like I don't see a lot of people talk about it enough. It, it's just a really awesome, very diverse, very well-written sci-fi series. Um, and uh, she was also in Riddick, which is like some of my favorite stuff. So. <laughs> oh nice I'll check that show out because I just finished re-watching The Hauntings on Netflix so Blind Manor right. and Hill House and then oh, I've seen yeah. Midnight Mass so many times I want to start <laughs> Devil in Ohio Ooh, but I'm yes. also gonna start that other one you just mentioned Another Life yeah yeah because the thing that I love about a lot of like like um deep space exploration fiction there is a fine line between like fiction and horror when it comes to that like there's a really fine line and it's like you know it could be a completely scientific concept but it is so mortifying as a human being that it's like it's practically Lovecraftian like it's oh so it's so good yeah (laughs) Like, I love the Alien movies. Yes. I love Annihilation. Yes. Oh, my God. You're going to love this. And the characters are so complex. It makes it really, really fun. Um, I would definitely liken Katie Sackhoff to being, like, a contemporary Sigourney Weaver. Easily. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, like, Katie Sackhoff is, like, not even human. Like, I can't even get oh, yeah. over her. Like, like, she's somebody that does, like, Iron Man, like, marathons and shit. Okay, anyways, back to song. Right? I'm, like, I'm literally trying not to say that I had, like, the biggest crush on Amanda from Saw. Like... <laughs> I think we both did, yeah. Yeah, like, but, like, for me, I actually, it was a wicked turnoff when she, like, became, like, absolutely batshit crazy. I was like, oh, no, she needs to die, like, yesterday. Yeah. (laughs) Like, this is nutso. (laughs) We're basically going to get to that point when we get to the third movie, which picks up almost exactly where the second one left off. So we have (laughs) Eric chained up, thank you, in the murder bathroom and basically instead of sawing off his foot he smashes it to pieces in order to shimmy it out of the cuff and in this movie we start to see the rise of traps that are unwinnable so detective allison from the previous movie is killed in a gruesomely impossible trap that rips her rib cage just wide open and guts go flying everywhere And then we're introduced to investigator Daniel Rigg, R-I-G-G, and Detective Mark Hoffman, who is a major player as the Saw movies go forward. Meanwhile, Amanda kidnaps a surgeon named Lynn and straps a bomb collar to her that will go off if the terminally ill John Kramer dies and we see him in a gurney with his health failing. Concurrently, Another game is happening. A man by the name of Jeff, who lost his son in a hit and run where the perpetrator was let off easy, must face people involved in his case in order to move on and forgive them. He goes through these rooms where the victims are in traps 
and they're the people involved in his case and he basically gets to choose if they live or die so there's the witness who didn't testify the judge and the driver and they're all in their own separate traps and Jeff is the slowest man on earth, so the witness dies from being sprayed with freezing water before he can act. And he does save the judge from drowning in pig intestines, but not before he dies accidentally later on. And the driver is also killed from being torn apart mechanically before Jeff does anything. So, as this is all going on, We go back to Lynn, who's performing brain surgery, drilling a hole with just like an impact driver into John Kramer's head to relieve pressure, which is a pretty intense scene. And Amanda snaps for what the audience right now thinks is for no reason. But we find out later she's actually being blackmailed. And she tells John that she rigged some traps so they were unbeatable. And in her breakdown, she shoots Lynn. But Jeff shows up, shoots Amanda, because we learn that Jeff and Lynn are actually married. Jeff shoots John out of anger, but because John is dying, that means Lynn's bomb collar also detonates. And then Jeff finds the tape saying he failed his test. So I didn't mind the third movie at all. And one thing in my notes, I said... There's great chemistry between Lynn and her captor, Amanda. (laughs) And I think the pig trap in this movie is one of the nastiest ones out there. And for me, this is also where the series takes a turning point where it's increasingly more about kind of the torture than really the plot. So do you have any thoughts on the third movie or do you want me to go to the fourth movie? Because they kind of happen like at the same time. So yeah. I don't know if you want me to do that first. I I would just say that this one made me the angriest. I think out of the entire series, the way this one ended made me crazy. I was so, I was like bullshit because of, of how it ended <laughs> for sure. Um, I also do like that you really see um, how... How like rigid uh, Jigsaw is in his morals, which I really like, because there are points, you know, sometimes throughout the series where you think that John Kramer is this evil, horrible man, which, of course, you know, you can definitely argue that. But um, everything he does is on purpose, whereas you have people like Amanda and then other people later who start to do things to serve their own goals. And that's where you start getting these really messed up, unbeatable traps. And I like the fact that you actually see John reprimand Amanda, and that's why she flips out. Yeah. I know it's horror, but mm-hmm. the fact that just everybody dies at the end, I was like, yeah. I watched this for so long, yes. and then everybody died. Seriously, like the pure irony of Jeff not being able to make a single decision, and then he makes two without even thinking. Like, really? You you really did that. <laughs> you just ruined everybody's day, buddy. Yeah. Your wife was right to divorce you. Like <laughs> <laughs> Going on to movie number four out of nine. <laughs> so 
The fourth movie continues to follow Hoffman and the investigators in the aftermath of finding Allison's ripped apart body. So now the FBI is involved, which it took this long to get the FBI involved, I guess. We meet Peter and Lindsay of the FBI, and they theorize that the unwinnable traps are by a jigsaw copycat or apprentice, and that Amanda physically couldn't have done it all on her own. So there must be another one. We're reintroduced to Eric Matthews and Detective Rigg, who's been spiraling since his partner Eric went missing months ago. Rigg is drugged in his apartment and finds a tape telling him that Eric is alive and Hoffman has been abducted now too, and only Rigg can save them. So Peter and Lindsay go to his apartment while he's gone, and this is Rigg's apartment, and see his crazy obsession bulletin board business with like everything connected to everything else, all about the jigsaw killings and Eric's disappearance. And on the walls, they see photos of Kramer's ex-wife, Jill. So Rig, sort of like Jeff, has to see people in traps on his way to rescue Eric and decide to intervene or not, which is kind of the main point of his traps, or his test, rather. And the new victims in this movie are three criminals. Then there's the defense lawyer who got them off, plus Eric and Hoffman. So... One great trap as a part of Riggs' journey he goes through is seeing an abusive man and his wife are stood back to back and they have arrows going through them, but they're at such angles where if pulled out, the wife would survive, but the man will have arrows pass through areas that will kill him if they are removed. And there's like an anatomy chart that displays this. So in case the viewer doesn't get it, it's like these go through like lethal arteries on this guy, but this lady will be fine. So back in the interrogation room and it just kind of jumps to that, like Rig is like, oh, you guys got this. And then he just leaves them there. So he does pull the fire alarm, though, so police will, like, find them. But then we see Jill being interrogated now. And she says that John kind of became twisted after his cancer diagnosis and after she was attacked while she was pregnant, causing her to lose the baby. His first victim is actually her attacker, and he was strapped to a chair with knives across his face, and he had to slide past them in order to escape. Plus, he had knives in his arms, so he would bleed out anyways if he didn't act at all. Eventually, Rig finds the other secret hideout where Eric and Hoffman are being held, along with the defense lawyer I mentioned earlier. Side note, how many rental properties does John Kramer own to have all these different murder locations? I I feel like it was part of his job. Yeah, oh, it definitely was. Yeah, he was like some kind of developer or something. Yeah, they were, like, abandoned, like, warehouses from, mm-hmm. like, things he was affiliated with. And it was mm-hmm. basically they figured it out because his son's name was, like, the name of the building. Like, oh, it, yeah. was, it was supposed to be Gideon. So they oh. were like, oh, like, that's the name of the building John Kramer, like, worked at or something mm-hmm. like that. He had some, like, involvement with it that they were able to find. Mm -hmm. but 
there's like so many details that I just didn't include everything. No, totally. Like, if anyone decides they want to watch these after listening to this still, there is way more than what I've even been able to describe. Like, they just get crazier and crazier and like, everybody is connected to everybody, basically. Here's when it starts to get a little more complicated. Eric and Hoffman's traps are interdependent, where if the ice water in Eric's trap reaches the electric chair Hoffman is strapped to, he'll die. And in the same room, the lawyer has a bomb strapped to him, and he has the power to free everybody after 90 minutes. Otherwise, they'll die. So, of course, Rig gets there before the 90 minutes are up somehow. And they shoot at him to try to prevent him from coming in because they know that he'll they'll die if he comes in early. But obviously, Rig doesn't know this. So they're like, they get, do land one shot on him. But Rig opens the door anyways. And this is another brutal scene where Eric Matthews gets his head bashed in by giant blocks of ice as part of his trap. And we just see, like, his head explode. And Rig shoots the lawyer, thinking, like, he's behind all of it. But he finds a tape saying he failed his test, which was he was so obsessed with saving everyone else instead of letting others take care of themselves. At this point, the movie gets so dramatic when... Hoffman simply gets up out of the electric chair slowly and he reveals himself as one of Jigsaw's apprentices and then he leaves Rig to die from his gunshot wound and investigator Peter from earlier like way earlier gets to the hideout where looking around he finds the corpses of Amanda and John Kramer So Saw 3 and 4 actually occurred at the same time, just in different rooms of this giant warehouse. And because of this, Jeff the father frantically runs into Peter because he, like, technically just finished his, like, torture session. And he doesn't know who Peter is. And Peter doesn't know who he is, so he actually kills Jeff. Then Hoffman locks him in the room with the bodies of Amanda. John Kramer, Jeff, and Lynn the Surgeon. And I also didn't mind this movie, but it's mostly because I see it as just part two of the third one. Like, they're kind of just one unit to me. So I don't know if you have any other final thoughts on these two you want to discuss. Totally. I totally agree with your last statement that this is most definitely part two. And it honestly made me enjoy the third movie more knowing that this was happening at the same time because if yeah. it was only the third movie and then it moved on to a different like sort of plot line it would have been as maddening as it was the first time I watched it yeah I just love how like Saw is basically like you have one thing happening in a room mm-hmm. first movie next movie it's basically the same events you just see it like one room out watching the first movie again through the eyes of some other person and then like the next movie after that is just the same thing expanded more and you basically just see like everything happen all at once but just from different perspectives Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And and, and like just the like, effect just keeps getting like broader and broader. Like the more people that are included. Yeah, it's like remember this from the first movie. Well, this person was actually there the whole time, and you had mm-hmm. no idea. Oh, the other thing too is this movie is super heavy on unbeatable traps like the one that got the the female cop was unbeatable in part due to the the mechanism that was like attached to her ribs she physically would not have been able to remove even if she got the key that was at the bottom of like hydrochloric acid so that would have actually killed her anyway but then the mechanism also 100% would have killed her Basically, what we'll see, too, in the movies going forward is Hoffman is just sick and twisted. Like, he has no, Mm -hmm. like, moral Mm -hmm. motivation behind them. He's just killing people. Uh Uh-huh. I love uh, Jill Tuck. I love her character arc. Yeah. (laughs) Because she is also a psycho, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. It's like everything John Kramer touches, for real. Um. I also, too, I felt kind of bad for Rig. I felt like he didn't deserve to be included in this. Yeah, like his only thing was he was kind of a decent police officer wanting to help right. people. Like, like you're telling like, me he cared too much? Yeah. <laughs> no, I agree with that. Him and Adam are definitely on the bottom of like people who really deserve to be in the traps. Whereas yeah. some people are like, you know drunk drivers and like things like that that it's like okay I understand why you're torturing this person or like the um guy who did like sexual assault who had his eyes poked out and then like his limbs pulled off I was like I get this like right like I yeah exactly and then you have somebody like Rig who you're like you know like he's fine but then he's like, you're literally faced with these like murderers and assaulters. And then there's Rig. I know. I would have liked to see more of him, but. Oh my God, me too. So on to Saw 5. <laughs> Basically. And you can just picture how increasingly tired I became while writing these summaries. Oh my God, I can't wait. <laughs> so. And also, like, it kind of fits how just farcical the movies become. And it's like, oh, like, they're not even trying anymore. Why am I? Like, literally, it's almost like it becomes more and more commercial as the series goes on. Yeah. So, Saw 5. Basically, the movie starts. There's another bad dude in this trap that resembles... On the Haunted House Rise scene in the first Scooby-Doo live-action movie with the swinging blades. And even though he accomplishes his task, the blades don't stop. And we see Voyeur Hoffman in another room just watching it all happen, just smiling. Back at the hideout, Peter, who was subdued by Hoffman at the end of the last movie... He actually is able to escape a trap where his head is underwater, like in a box, by stabbing his throat tracheotomy style. And he's eventually rescued by paramedics for now. So like in Saw number two, the game of this movie involves 
a group of five people trying to escape an area. And it's like this underground, like dilapidated place. And their connection to each other and why they're in the saw trap in the first place is the various corrupt town officials, real estate developers, and only two survive the different traps up until the final room where they have to sacrifice their blood via their arms in order to fill 10 pints worth, which will then unlock the door. However, they realize that if the five of them had just worked together the whole time, they would only need to give two pints each instead of five pints between the two of them that are left. And there's this whole montage where they're like, oh, like, we could have saved everybody, like, if we just worked together. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> so back on the outside. <laughs> it's becomes... like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's all I have to say about it. I love it. Back outside of the trap, Peter becomes increasingly suspicious of Hoffman because he's just a suspicious dude. Like, his face half the time looks like he's up to no good. So Hoffman plants evidence to frame Peter as a jigsaw apprentice and kills him in a trap where the walls closed in on themselves. And it's pretty brutal when you just like see like all the bones break as it like collides and he can't escape. So that's actually basically what I had for the fifth movie. Yeah, I, I loved the twist on this one. Yeah, and now everybody thinks it was Peter. But movie number six, we see this insurance executive go through a series of traps because his job originally was to find discrepancies in people's applications in order to deny them coverage. And at one point, he denied John Kramer's application. So that's why he's a victim here. And just by being like a terrible person. So he makes it to the end where a widow and her son get to decide his fate, just as he had decided to deny their family member coverage. And he ended up dying as a result of that. So the main point where on the outside, investigators are still on to Hoffman, but he kills them again. So Jill, Kramer's ex-wife, is also on to him captures him and leaves him in a trap and other details also come out in this movie like how amanda's ex-boyfriend was actually the one who attacked jill for drugs and accidentally killed her baby but if i provide too much of these like little details we'll be here all night (laughs) yeah oh yeah that's the sixth movie basically before it gets crazy when we go to saw seven so Do you have any thoughts on kind of the coherent lore of the story? I mean, you know, I would definitely say Saw 6 was probably like when we started getting into a bit of lazy territory. Yeah. Because it it really just kind of felt like like it was because I feel like before it was like story traps, story traps, ooh, intrigue traps. And now it's just like traps, 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 traps. (laughs) yeah like when I was writing the summaries I was like this trap is totally irrelevant to the actual story like 
it'll just start with a random person in a trap and it's like well then they kind of justify it by being like the person in the swigging blades actually killed Hoffman's sister who we never met before Mm -hmm. and it's like okay well that's nice I guess but like Mm -hmm. I didn't really know anything about it before then you know literally um and I'm like I'm looking at stills um is this too when um Hoffman and Jill start getting into it oh yeah Mm -hmm. um that was my favorite dynamic yeah because they both just try to outsmart each other so (laughs) she's on to him and she had left him the note that says like I know what you are Mm -hmm. um kind of classic Twilight style yeah and she tries to kill him yep she captures him and puts him in a trap as per Kramer's instructions Mm -hmm. before he died. And it's the same trap that he put Amanda in. Yeah. Oh, Mm -hmm. yeah. The reverse bear trap. And we just see everybody and their mom go into that one. (laughs) Oh, it's so bad. All right. Saw seven. Wait, can you remind me? I'm I'm writing myself a list and I'm kind of gore scoring them. Number mm-hmm. five. Is that the Riggs one? It's kind of unmemorable, but it's yeah. the group of people with oh it's like the real estate people. Yes, and it's, it's the arson case. Yeah, it's like totally random. Um yeah, you know, another and there's thing the bathtub. Too. Absolutely. That was my favorite trap of that movie was the electrified bathtub, because that is one of the one of the moments where you realize, oh, my God, if we had more people, it would have been a tiny little zap instead of an absolute murder. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Another thing, too, that I want to point out is I think one of the reasons why the movies get kind of bleh is because they stop focusing on John Kramer and they start focusing more on the auxiliary cast. Yeah, exactly. And it's like they bring in one person and it's like, well, we know they're going to be the only person (laughs) left to be in the next movie. So no, literally, it's like you're new. So this means you're integral to the rest of the series. So Saw 7, a.k.a. Saw 3D, a.k.a. Saw the final chapter, or so we think. (laughs) So my thing for this is (laughs) so quick. Even though there's more movies to come, this is Saw, the final chapter. And all you need to know about this movie is there's hot pink blood, a member of Linkin Park. And we learned that Dr. Lawrence Gordon from the first Saw movie was actually an apprentice all along after the events of the first movie. So he cut off his foot and gained a new lifestyle. (laughs) (laughs) so oh god also in this movie big event jill dies at the hands of hoffman in the famous reverse bear trap yep which i was kind of bummed about i was like really like i was pissed when he survived yeah like you crafty little shit i can't believe this just happened One redeeming concept of this movie 
that I did like is the person being tested is someone who, like we said earlier, wrote a book claiming mm-hmm. he was a jigsaw survivor, but he wasn't. Mm-hmm. So I kind of thought that was like a fresh dynamic versus like just targeting bad people in general. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was... It was honestly, like, like of course, like, other crimes were personal to John Kramer, but this really felt like a, like a jigsaw problem, because it was, mm-hmm. like, literally, a, like, somebody lying on his name, you know, and it was literally him going, like, all right, you said you did it, do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I actually really enjoyed the traps in this one. I thought they were really creative. Um, But I was also like, this is one of those ones where I was like, his wife dies, and she was literally completely innocent. Completely. Yeah. And she dies in, like, one of the worst ways, in my opinion. Yeah, I did like um, the car trap where they kill, like, the skinheads. That was pretty good. Oh, that was Um, so brutal. Like, any kind of, like, degloving is so, is is too much for me. (laughs) That's the Linkin Park guy. Yeah, is Um, that Chester Bennington, like, actually? uh, I can't remember which one, what his name is. I'm gonna look it up. Chester Bennington, it is. Mm, Yeah. Rest in paradise, my friend. Oh, did he pass? He did. Yeah, he passed, like, a couple years ago. Yeah. Uh Oh. I know, Yeah. Um, I know. Pour one out. I exactly for real. Well, you did a great job screaming in Saw Seven. I, like um, honestly, like I like, hope it was a highlight. <laughs> like that was actually such a good trap. That for me, it's one of the most memorable traps because of how many people it kills. Um, yeah, and just for how like I think it was so intense. Um, but I also think it was one of those ones that they wouldn't have been able to win. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But that's fine if they're skinheads. No, exactly. (laughs) So at the end of this movie, number seven, Gordon abducts Hoffman and chains his ankle to the pipe in the murder bathroom for the first movie. (laughs) That's right. And like in a bunch of the other movies, he says, game over. (laughs) And he closes the door. (laughs) I love that. Um, I also love too how Lawrence, in a way, got redemption. Um, and I like as well how um because he's a doctor, he quarter he what is it cauterized his wound. Yep. 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 Yeah. That was that was tough. That was tough to see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's kind of the main chunk, and then. Mm-hmm. The next movie, Jigsaw, came out seven years later, and it kind of revived the series. Saw 6 was kind of a flop, and there was supposed to be an eighth movie, but they scrapped it at the time when they were coming out, like, every year, because number 6 did so poorly. 2017, when Jigsaw came out, production quality is so much better than the other movies. It's really on par with what was coming out at the time regardless of kind of the content or anything like that just how the movie looks is a lot better than number seven was at all and number seven the hot pink blood is so distracting 
but yeah jigsaw definitely i remember when it came out too like it was a big thing again this movie follows jigsaw's first game where a group of bad people are chained up and they go through different traps and one of them is actually a man who sold Kramer's nephew a faulty motorcycle, causing his death. So we see these events happen in the past. And in the present, we see forensic scientists named Logan and Eleanor. And the movie goes back and forth between making you think either of them the killer or is the lead detective Halloran the killer. Um, and everybody looks suspicious. But we find out Eleanor is just a red herring because she's like a Saw super fan. And we learn that Logan, her co-worker, basically, is actually the apprentice after all. And he was the x-ray technician that mixed up Kramer's x-rays, causing John to not learn of his cancer diagnosis until it was too late. But Kramer basically took pity on him. It took him as an apprentice. So that's where basically Jigsaw leaves us at the end. And then a couple years later in 2021, kind of like what we talked about earlier, the movie Spiral from the Book of Saw came out. And I thought that one was fine. Same with Jigsaw. Um, it basically follows Chris Rock being the detective. And I thought it almost made it a little lighter. Like it was just kind of a different style of movie. Like you said, it was more of just a crime movie with like the saw branding slapped onto it. Like it could have been about any serial killer and it would have pretty much been the same. But I did like that Samuel L. Jackson was in it and he got to die in a saw movie. I thought that was really fun. I thought that was Um, cool, too. But I saw the, like, apprentice slash new killer being his partner from, like, 7,000 miles away. Like, I was kind of disappointed. I was actually hoping it would be, like, Chris Rock or something was the killer that I wouldn't expect. But I was, like, not shocked even a little bit when it was him like I thought it was pretty obvious so that was kind of my one big critique about it I just wish there was a little more thought put into like making the audience guess versus just like gore but overall I thought that one was fine um it was definitely entertaining and Either way, I'm still gonna watch Saw 10 when it comes out. So it doesn't even matter. Because even after Saw 7, I still watch the next two. Yep. So, (laughs) but, you know, that's pretty much what I have. Yeah. I don't know if you have any other remaining thoughts you'd like to share. Even though I could go on about Saw all day, we I could know. do a part two. We could do a part three. Oh my God, three. true. Um. I just have, I have one thought is that I feel like number seven is the end of the Saw series as we knew it. 
like it was the end of kind of that formula that they had created with the multiple timelines. It was the end of the convoluted, complicated traps. Um, and it was the end of, I think, the, the complicated storytelling as well. Because once you move on from seven, it goes immediately into your run-of-the-mill horror movie. It's it, it's like like it's a like I love what you said how it's like just like a a movie like with a serial killer with the saw branding like that's exactly how I feel about those movies but yeah I I can't wait to watch the 10th one (laughs) yeah me too that's gonna be a need to see it in theaters type of movie oh you're braver than me (laughs) buy that crap on Amazon bro yeah (laughs) I'll watch in my blankies. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Let me pull up my my little notes. I I have to say I've been so excited to hear about like what you've been looking at this week. <laughs> oh good. I hope it makes even a little bit of sense because the more that I tried to narrow down, the harder it became. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That's how I felt too. I was like yeah. I'm missing so much like <laughs> in this episode I'm going to take this opportunity to talk about one of my favorite things, which is the Asian horror genre. Specifically, I'm going to get to talk about ghosts. Um, And even more specifically, I'm going to talk about two of my favorite ghosts. Um, One is from the Philippines, and it is called the Mananangal. And then the other one is from Japan, and it is called the Teke Teke. And then I'm also going to touch shortly on uh, sort of uh, this movie called um, Incantation. And then I, and then if we have time, I'm thinking this could be kind of like an extra, or I can even do like a deep dive on Junji Ito at a later date. Um, but if if I feel like I've gotten to it in a good manner, um, I would also love to talk about one of my favorite stories called Tombs by Junji Ito. Um, what's nice about this story as well is that it was also recently adapted into Junji Ito's um, Netflix series. It's like a Junji Ito maniac tales of Japanese macabre oh I didn't I know that one was on there it's really good I mean some of them are a little bit not that interesting I think personally he has much better stories that they could have adapted but a couple of them hit sick um but basically I wanted to touch on these four different topics because I feel like they kind of provide like a well-rounded view into the different things that you'll find when exploring Asian horror as like an overall genre um because it has like a monster a ghost a curse and um a cursed location which I think is very cool one of the things that always drew, like sort of drew me back to a lot of the Asian horror movies and shows that I, I've been watching for literally at this point, it's been like over a decade. The first time I watched something like a foreign film, I think it was like a Korean ghost story or something. And um, I found it on Netflix. And Netflix had like this whole crazy library of like the most disturbing horror films I have honestly seen to this day. Like there are some that I've told Brendan about and I'm like, I need you to understand. I will not watch this with you. Like I just can't do it. The first time I watched it might as well have been an accident because I just didn't know what was going to happen. 
and an example of that is a movie called Strange Circus. If anybody watches it, it's not my fault. Um, <laughs> and that one is Japanese. Yeah, but one of the things that I really loved about watching an Asian horror film, especially compared to like an American horror film, was the rich culture and lore. Like they're like, it's almost like if I don't understand Asian culture, it's going to be harder for me to understand the movie. And I really actually enjoy that. I don't want it to be kind of basic and accessible. I want to learn something while I'm watching. I think that's very nifty. Um, I find that American ghost stories and even a lot of European ones lack a wider connection to their culture of origin. And I think that this really stinks. Um, the amount of information and depth in the average Asian ghost story creates a much deeper and more meaningful connection to the viewer compared to a lot of the ones that like we see today. Although luckily, you know, with, with like the, the rise in popularity with the A24 films, that's been really exciting for me to see because we're taking this like like I feel like 2009 all the way up until maybe 2019 or 2020 we were dealing with these formulaic horror films whereas all of a sudden we're kind of going back to the more long format psychological very like gothic horror storytelling methods which I am so obsessed with I mean like Frankenstein Dracula those are my babes those are my favorite stories and books you know yeah but, those are awesome yeah oh yes yes <laughs> like hereditary <laughs> is really fun I, I really enjoyed that movie I thought it was ooky spooky and I'm a huge fan of movies that use um like like the the camera will be focused on the foreground but you can see movement in the background those are my favorites yeah like barbarian did that the new oh. one and then that changeling movie i watched hole in the ground was mm -hmm. a24 too oh my god that's right oh, they've I been killing it that. yeah that was a good one mm-hmm um, but of course, you know, with me saying like how great Asian horror stories and movies and things are, um, you know, there are plenty of ghosts and ghost stories that have the same familiar formula that we're very used to. A person dies tragically and then is left to walk this mortal coil in a ghostly form until either getting revenge or someone solves their murder or whatever. Uh, and often they're stuck to a specific area that they haunt. In a lot of stories, though, from Japan, Korea, Indonesia, Malaysia, I think those are the really the, the countries that I tended to watch the most. Um, you know, that that isn't really always the case. A lot of the stories are not very cut and dry. Some films, such as Incantation, provide more questions than answers and simply just end when the main characters fail to meet their goal or fail to pacify whatever curse is following them. Um, I believe a lot of these stories are created to provide a moral sort of point of view or to, or to illustrate the power of nature, even like something supernatural. A lot of the, like I found this really interesting article talking about ways to avoid being disrespectful to like Asian spirits and ways to like respect them. And a lot of it was talking about like, don't touch things, uh, make sure you're respecting nature you know, you want to be very aware where you're walking. It was a lot of like literal, just don't be where you're not supposed to be, which is something <laughs> that you see a lot in these movies. 
Additionally, ghosts slash monsters, because like I'll talk about it a little later, but I feel like ghosts and monsters are like almost kind of interchangeable because there's this interesting facet where ghosts are also kind of like physical beings that can like live forever like sometimes they're a ghost and sometimes they're just like a cursed thing that can never die it's it's very i think it's very cool because normally we would just think of a ghost as being a person who was alive and now they're dead and now they're a ghost but sometimes like they were human but now they're something else entirely yeah it's kind of almost like a deterioration after death sometimes or like a demon-esque ghost type of thing yeah yeah like um that's why i love the the mana nangal because it's really um really fun to spell but it's also one of those things where it's technically a ghost but she's also technically a vampire and so um, what I also like, kind of like is, you know, you have the familiar stories, but when you get more to what I find to be the more like quintessential Asian, you know, kind of factors, I guess, in like their storytelling is that like the ghosts are often able to move around and they have a very large reach and they're able to really affect anything or anyone that has either disturbed them or caught their attention. Because some of these stories, it really does feel like it's happening to a bystander, which can be kind of distressing. (laughs) I think this drive and reach that the ghosts often have in these stories provides a much more captivating and scary problem for the story's protagonist. I think sometimes ghosts aren't as scary as other things due to their lack of reach and and their literal lack of physical being. Because, like, you would kind of think, like, oh, you have a haunted house, just leave the house. You should be fine. But in a lot of these stories, that's just not an option. Like, incantation technically takes place over about six years. The literal drive that these ghosts have, it's like, because sometimes you'll see ghosts and they're just a shadow of their former selves. They're stuck in time loops. They're unable to be aware of their surroundings. It's really just about their story, their goals, and who is directly interacting with them. Whereas a lot of the ghosts in this one is like, they, it's like they're more conscious. They're smarter. They're aware. They can get around and they will find you. And I think that's that's very frightening because it really provides the sense of helplessness that I think in like American horror, we don't really have a lot because I feel like like American storytelling by nature tends to have a happy ending and it tends to be very like, in a way, self-serving because you want to see them succeed. You know, of course, the the good guy wins over the bad guy, but that's just not the case with a lot of these stories. There isn't a good or bad guy. There's people, there's nature. They don't even see ghosts as being ghosts. Like, it's just this natural force. It's as common as water. It's just something that they live and respect and coexist with. And I think that's really cool because I think, too, that we're very detached from death. It's just a thing that happens and we deal with it once in a while. But that's just really not the case for them. Um, But I also find, too, that, like, you'll definitely run into 
like it was really fun researching some of this and I could definitely go through like each and every country and talk about the different ways that they practice things the different way that's ways that they view things um but what I really loved is like you know we have like the words ghost and poltergeist like those are technically two different things um but like in Japan and in Malaysia they have like 10 different words for different ghosts and the ghosts can literally be as specific as like woman who died in childbirth or woman who was murdered by rageful lover it's really cool because there's like um i think the japanese word for ghost is oh no oh no it's gone because i can't remember if it's yokai or, or if there's another one because there's another one like just like that i think yokai is for like the mythical spirits and then there's another word that starts with like yo but it ends something different and those are like actual ghosts and then even in there there's all of these like subcategories for like angry female ghost angry male ghost tricky little boy <laughs> like different things <laughs> like that the other fun thing about like a lot of like Asian ghost stories is that you'll be faced with entities that blur the line between ghost and monster. There are many that genuinely qualify as both. Some are seen as vampires, some are seen as zombies, some are ghosts, some are demons, uh, you know, just depending. The other fun thing too, again, is that they exist in several different countries. And so you'll kind of hear them by like a bunch of different names from a bunch of different sources. Like, I think I've heard the same story but like each time they say it's from a different place. So there was actually a while where I thought that I had like dreamt up the, the Mananangal because I kept finding it under different names. And then I finally found it under the name that <laughs> I knew it by. And I was like, you stinker. <laughs> but, but that's the first version I ever heard was the Philippine was the Filipino version, the Mananangal. But there's also the Malaysian version, which seems to be one of the more like popular interpretations, which I believe is called the um like the Krasu. Um, and just for fun, there's also the Malaysian version of the name, which I, I don't even know if I can say that. Penangalang. Yeah, it's like that. Ooh. Yes. <laughs> which is fun because it's actually pretty similar to Mananangal, which is, is pretty cool. But it's all roughly the same thing. And I will go into that right now. Basically, Yay. the Mananangal <laughs> is one of my absolute favorite ghosts, creatures, whatever you want to call it. A lot of diff a lot of cultures refer to it as a vampire, but I kind of choose to think of it as more of like kind of like a possession. And so basically, you know, you'll have a normal woman and at night her head separates from the rest of her body and her entrails, her organs are still attached to her head and her head floats and flies around and looks for people to suck their blood. In Thailand, the krasu is the head and organs, but the mananangal in the Philippines is actually the head, torso, arms i think and it has wings and fangs and the organs yeah so the mananangal is basically cursed to hunt every single night um and and always get into that nasty nasty form and and honestly like i thought it was one of the scariest things I had ever heard. Like the first time I heard it, I was listening to like a YouTube compilation of different Asian horror stories and folklore. And all of a sudden they started talking about a floating head with entrails. 
ma'am, I am terrified of intestines. And you're telling me this ghost is <laughs> literally bringing them to me? Are you kidding? This hits all of my special fears. <laughs> awful, awful, awful. Like I could totally handle a floating head. I could. But but like tummy parts, you got to get those away from me as fast as you can. <laughs> Yeah. Like, I have two things that really freak me out in horror, and it's, like, intestines and throat stuff I have, like, the hardest time with. Anything else, I'm fine. So the other one that I wanted to talk about is more in line with, like, your stereotypical ghost. It's very much an urban legend, very popular for teens, and this one is called the Teke Teke. And this is probably one that most people would have heard of before just because it is very, like, kind of like a silly urban legend. So allegedly, this young teenage girl fell onto train tracks she got hit by a train and cut in half so now her ghost right is physic is like is cut in half and part of her spine sticks out and and in legends she sort of like either crawls on her elbows or using like her full arm and the teke teke is the sound of her spine hitting the railroad tracks oh <laughs> <laughs> I know. And so they say that she haunts a lot of urban area areas, especially like alleyways and train tracks, train stations. And if you see her, she like make eye contact with her. She'll just start chasing you. And if she gets you, she'll cut you in half just like she is. I love her. I thought that was nasty. Like that kind of like onomatopoeia for her own name to be Teke Teke. And every time you say it, you think of like her spine. Like that's so awful. And also too, like I grew up near the train station. I always took trains when I was in like high school and stuff to get to school. So like hearing about it was so spooky. Um, I'm also a big fan of haunted transportation, like trains and ships and stuff. It's very fun like the haunted car from Futurama <laughs> yes <laughs> yes oh my goodness yeah but I feel like the the Mananangal is a really good way to sort of explain that like blurred line between ghost and physical being and whereas the Teke Teke is kind of like the more stereotypical like a ghost appears it gets you and then it just disappears again whereas the Mananangal is literally somebody who physically has to return to her body every night. Incantation is a fantastic movie on Netflix. Um, I really did enjoy it. Um, and again it's from Taiwan I rated it probably like about a two out of ten on the gore score it is mostly kind of like a thriller very minimal violence but it is quite intense and it's very much like a possession story but like all good movies you don't really see the gorgeous monster until like midway and towards the end really really wonderful um great storytelling like i said earlier it takes place over a period of six years and it basically follows this poor woman who six years ago went with her two friends to this out of the way mystical village that one of her friends like his family was part of that village this village was having this like once every decade or whatever a ritual to appease the god that they worship right and the thing about this god is you give it your name and the more you think about it the more powerful it gets and you're never allowed to use that name while in that village again but the thing too about this god that they pray to is it's literally the god of bad luck 
if you're part of this family and you stay there, you are this like, you're this beacon of bad luck. You are now going to bring bad luck to everyone around you. You can't leave the village, basically. But of course, these three young people go, they infiltrate the ritual, they lie to this guy's family, and they just mess everything up for the sake of their like YouTube channel, dead ass, right? And so her two friends, they, you know, have their own fate, and, and she is essentially cursed. But this poor woman was pregnant when she came to this village, right? So she manages to escape. She has her child. She is put in an institution. Um, and, and basically what they did destroyed the village. And now the bad luck is following her and her child. So about six years later, she's, she's healthy again. She's reunited with her child. And of course, the second they're reunited, all of these things start happening to her. All of this bad luck is coming for her. And then it starts to come for her daughter. Her daughter gets increasingly sick, things keep going wrong for them, and the woman realizes, oh my god, I have to go back to this village in an effort to save my daughter. And, and I really liked this because for a good chunk of it, I was pretty sure that it was going to be kind of like a, like a force, not necessarily a ghost, it was probably like an elder god situation, um, and now she has to go back and do something to appease it. But what I just love was the ghost design. It has multiple faces, and it's very much about self-image, reflection. Uh, there's a lot of kind of like introspection that's required. I don't know. I just loved it. And basically, the main woman has to sacrifice herself and give herself to this actual god who isn't going to rest until what's wrong is right. And oh, so I love that. <laughs> I really genuinely recommend it because because there's something kind of special about a story where the protagonist owns up to what they did. Because mm -hmm. it was literally her and her friends actions that caused the demise of an entire village, completely disrupted their entire system and angered this old god who could now go after almost anybody. Um, so that's very fun because that's also kind of like kind of a different ghost element that you'll see. You'll have kind of the, the monster ghost, the urban legend ghost, and then you'll have the nature ghost or god. Often it's, it's kind of like a demigod situation. Um, it reminded me a lot of the movie The Ritual. Mm. Yeah, it, it kind of had like that that feeling, especially too because like, I love movies where, again, like Lovecraftian, like you see something and you're like, oh, this is older than dirt. This is more powerful than anything we'll ever know. We should just do whatever it wants. <laughs> yeah. And it's like the when you know that the being that's in control isn't really that good, yes. you know, Yes. But it has all this power, so you can't yes. do anything about it. Exactly. Because the thing, too, is like, it's one thing for a village to pray to a god that's going to give them riches. But it's almost like the village is praying to this god in order to just not be decimated by this god. Yeah. 
like it's literally just to pacify this horrible I mean honestly the monster design is very beautiful um I'm I'm a huge fan of it um like Adam Neville I think his name is he's the guy who wrote the ritual he's the guy who wrote um oh my god this other one I think it's like nobody gets out alive maybe um and the monster in that one is horrifying uh, a little bit of human anatomy going on multiple heads mouths very very cool um but yeah it kind of had that <laughs> like again it's like the difference between american plot lines where good versus evil compared to kind of like innocent versus malevolent mm. like this thing doesn't even see you you're just there oh my god <laughs> yeah yeah right like ooh. <laughs> so yeah finally right i wanted to provide another kind of um option right so you have the physical ghosts you have the demigod slash monster slash ghost uh i'd also curse i would definitely you know reckon that that's very cursy <laughs> um <laughs> But finally, oh, I hit a button. Um, and so finally, I'm just going to touch really quickly on my new favorite Junji Ito story. Junji Ito is a wonderful manga artist, question mark, illustrator, writer. Uh, you know, he does all that. Yeah, I think it's artist, but thank you. It's all the same to me. <laughs> right, I know. <laughs> yeah, I literally at this point, I have read every single book that Junji Ito has come out with. Um, the compilation that I just finished is literally called Tombs, which is the title of the story that I'm going to talk about. Um, and the title of the of the episode adaption, I believe is called like Tombs Town or something, which is so stupid, Ooh. but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> like it could have just been Tombs. Like it really could have, but whatever. This one is a really fun example of a haunted location which is very fun and I'm not talking haunted house I'm talking an entire little town and so you have brother and a sister and they get invited by the sister's you know um childhood friend to go visit her in the new town she lives in they go right and and the brother just got this car he's showing off he's so excited and he came with the sister because of course he has a little crush on her sister's friend I mean what are you gonna do she's cute whatever and so he tags <laughs> along he drives his sister and unfortunately there are all these winding roads and sharp turns and it's a little dark because of the canopy of the trees and all of a sudden bam they hit somebody with their car they stop they're mortified I mean I don't think that these characters could be older than like 18 you know and so they get out of their car and this this poor young girl has been hit um her face is swollen they're freaking out she's still alive so they put her in the back of the car they start driving they don't know what to do um and then the person in their back seat dies and the oh. brother instead of you know telling anybody bringing her to the hospital doing anything puts her in the trunk of his car and then oh. they drive into town and they act like nothing is wrong and the brother is saying you know let's just drive through town find somewhere in the forest dump her and come back but alas they can't because the second they enter town their car drives over a giant tombstone and knocks it over of course. Ooh. What are you thinking? Putting tombstones in the middle of the road. Well, I'll tell you. 
that's just how things are in this town. When somebody dies, where they die, a tombstone is seemingly erected by who oh. or what they assume the other townspeople. You know, we just assume this is a tradition that's part of this town. They just do it. As the story mm-hmm. goes on, you find that it happens to animals, anything, birds, cats, dogs, whatever, where they die, a tombstone of varying sizes is going to pop up. People are very serious about this, and you cannot touch a body once somebody dies, or else apparently it will disturb their rest. So, flashback to, you know, the the sister and the brother, and they finally meet with um, her friend, their family, they're all kikiing, it's an okay day, and of course the whole time there's a body in the trunk. So they're, you know, reminiscing, the friend is showing them all around town and being kind of vague about the reason for the tombstones. Um, And she actually shows that there are two tombstones inside of the rental property that she lives in. And she just casually, she's like, oh, yeah, well, these were the past tenants. So they've always been there. All the rentals are like this. This is where they died. And they're like, "Okay, sure. Sounds weird. but night comes and and her friend's little sister has not come back from the day so the friend that lives in tombtown is called izumi koru is the sister and oh my god she literally only says my brother so fine that's what he's called so it's koru and brother and then it's Izumi and Ayumi. Okay, so Koru nice. and brother hit Ayumi with their car, and they couldn't recognize her because her face was too swollen. And this whole time, oh. they're lying to Izumi and her parents, and they know at, by the time that they're eating dinner that it's Ayumi in the trunk of their car. And the family is, like, like withering and weeping and really upset Because it's one thing to be missing in a normal situation, but Ayumi has gone missing in Tombtown. And they keep saying, if we don't find her, she's being moved around, she's never going to find rest. And we realize, you know, very quickly, like, this is a very, very big deal for them. So the next day, the entire town is out looking for Ayumi, and there just continues to be less and less hope. Koru is having, like, the biggest absolute crisis she's like we have to tell them we have to come clean the whole time her brother is like no we're fine like it doesn't matter like you know we'll be able to get out of this you know it's not worth ruining our lives meanwhile they killed like a nine-year-old like come on um (laughs) and so through their search they find this this well this seemingly bottomless well and um and and so they they kind of learn a little bit about like the lore like nobody knows who built this well um apparently people who can't find rest they are then picked up and basically disposed of into this well because it's too treacherous and traumatizing to have them not find rest and so koru and brother actually end up happening by the hospital where they see what happens when somebody's dying right so when somebody is dying you like like in in this hospital right they'll literally pick you up and bring you outside and put you somewhere where there's room and then you stay there and then when you achieve peace is when you physically turn into a tombstone oh yes all of the tombstones that they've been seeing were once people or animals 
And, and when you touch a body, it disrupts it. You like, if you move it, it basically the stone won't, won't form correctly. So then they're not able to find peace. And so, you know, you can only imagine what would happen to a dead body inside of the trunk of a car. So the brother has this great idea of throwing Ayumi down the bottomless well. And of course, in doing that, they actually see her horrible visage. And it's this, this bloated corpse that's like basically half crystallized. And it's like all of this sharp, jagged rock. But it's, it's disgusting. It's like instead of turning into a regular, very sleek, normal looking monument stone, you have something that's basically like this half human, half rock monstrosity. I would definitely never find peace if I saw that. Um, <laughs> so, so brother and Koru and, and brother is basically pressuring Koru this whole time. And so brother and Koru, uh, put Ayumi down the well, but in doing so brother gets cut by the statue. And, uh, and so a couple days pass, they leave the village. They're like, I'm sorry, Izumi, you know, we came at such a bad time, like we have to go. And so they go back to their city and the brother starts to get increasingly more and more ill. He is literally like in, in the adaption, he was infected by the stone and ended up turning into one of those like stone monsters. But in the manga, he just like passes away. And, uh, and, the and the manga actually, actually I thought was a lot better because it ends really sad. <laughs> um, so the brother ends up passing away and uh, Koru is left to deal with all of the guilt, her brother's death, everything they've done. And she resolves herself to come clean and turn herself in. But she wants to tell the family you know, Izumi and her parents. So she travels all the way back to their town, all the way back to their house. And she goes and she finds three monuments inside of the house. And she realizes she's too late. <laughs> so again, like open-ended, kind of sad, like, like the ending of Incantation, you feel so much sympathy for the mother. She's doing everything she can to protect her daughter, and then she goes so far as to face her absolute worst fear and give herself to this being and worship this being for the, safe, for the safety and sake of her daughter. Um, and then in this one, it's like you have this young woman so wrought with guilt over the effect she's had over this family of her friend, but it turns out the grief was too much and she was too late to save even them. And uh, I dig that. <laughs> yeah, you know what this one also kind of reminded me of yeah. is um, piece where everybody has their own perfect like mold yes. in the rock wall and oh, you just yeah. like go into it but this is mine it's yeah. meant for me <laughs> you know that was the first junji ito story i read um and uh, i so it's just so unnerving and uncomfortable um love it <laughs> yeah that's one of my favorites yeah yeah this new book um also called tombs and it's the newest anthology that he like literally came out with in march because i am that intense about his books 
<laughs> um, I actually really, really enjoyed this one compared to a couple others that I had kind of uh, read before. Um, and it actually features at least two or three, maybe actually more, maybe three stories um, that were adapted and featured in the, the anthology series, like the Netflix series. Yeah. Um, so I definitely recommend watching some of those. Um, and I will, because I <laughs> my coworker um, watched some of it and he was like, yeah, this is what I was expecting. Um, and it's because Junji Ito, while he does a lot of ghost stuff and horror stuff, he also does kind of like, um, like almost like campy, like, like ironic and almost like funny but it's not actually funny haha it's like that's trying to be funny but I'm deeply uncomfortable why are you laughing don't look at me like that like that's yeah. kind of how it feels um and so I think the first episode is like that but the other ones are are much more like quintessential Junji Ito um I don't really like his funny stuff uh it's just not my thing um I don't like most horror comedy type deal. I find it to be kind of annoying. I'm here for one thing and it's horror. Like that's just <laughs> what I want. <laughs> like like don't get cute with it. I don't want to be don't get cute. <laughs> <laughs> um let me take a gander. Yeah, but I have some movies that are definitely honorable mentions. Um there is one called Eerie, which is from the Philippines rigor mortis which if you talk about vampires i am going to bring this movie up so quickly because the the way like this is one of those situations where it's like is it a ghost or is it a monster it's both um and so rigor mortis is from china and it's literally about like chinese vampires and spirits and i don't know if you're familiar with like a chinese vampire but they're like jumping vampires they're often physically restricted and they literally jump and chase you they're very powerful oh my god this movie was amazing there was a lot of like um martial arts going on amazing 10 out of 10 um but <laughs> on the gore score it was only a 5 out of 10 so don't worry <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then there's also like this one is more fun. This is called White Melody of Death. This is a Korean film. It was pretty violent, but it's definitely what I would refer to as like a teen scream. And um, this one was kind of like a satirical take on like K-pop groups and idol culture. And uh mm. And then uh, this one is, I, I don't stand by it anymore. It's called Sick Nurses. It's from Thailand. Um, and it's very violent, very creepy. The aesthetic and the cinematography is really, really cool. But the, the story is really problematic. And the way that they portray uh, like, like gayness is really, really problematic. Um, oh, yeah. So, yeah. So that would be my, my main hang up about that one. Um, like, I, I guess, you know, you could still watch it. I think it's kind of worth the watch. But if you do watch it, you'll definitely see kind of what I mean. Um, and then so the movie, though, that haunts me to this day is called Strange Circus. Don't watch it. Don't watch it. Just don't watch it. Just <laughs> don't watch it. <laughs> don't watch it. <laughs> like... When I watched it, I was like, I was like 15. It was like two in the morning. I literally just didn't sleep after. 
I just didn't sleep. <laughs> I just stayed up until the next day. I I wasn't right for like three days afterwards. I just kept thinking about this movie. <laughs> like, like Lars von Trier has nothing on this movie. Lars von Trier wishes he made Strange Circus. Okay. Nasty. That's like how I felt after Annabelle creation. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, horrors beyond comprehension. <laughs> I love it. it. That is definitely the same. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, you know, of course, much like Saw, this is something that I could really go on and on. I've watched so many different movies, TV shows, series from so many different, you know, countries, cultures. It's really been quite an enlightening experience. Um, you know, a lot of people say that, like, British humor is better than American humor, and they're right. I would definitely say that Asian horror is better than any other horror out there, just hands down. Oh, for um, sure. Train yeah. to Busan, one oh, of my, my favorites. That, that movie made me cry. Yeah. I was a baby after that movie. <laughs> um, oh, another another series that I absolutely loved. I think it's based in like feudal Korea, maybe. And um, it's called Kingdom. Very zombie-centric. Yeah. Amazing. That's a good one too. Absolutely amazing, amazing series. That's all I got. Oh, that was awesome. Thank you. <laughs> this was great. Alrighty, buddy. Okay. <laughs> I'm thinking it's probably time for bed. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> Have a nice night. You too. Bye. Bye. Welcome home, Columbia. Beautiful, beautiful.